So Mark. And welcome to The Marketing Show. Just so we're clear, we are both called Mark. That is correct. Join us each week as we understand the principles that makes businesses succeed. Each week, we'll lean into a new marketing concept to uncover a new piece of the puzzle. We're a couple of marketing guys who are passionate about the craft and always hungry to learn more. So we've embarked on a learning journey and we're excited to have you along for the ride. And on today's episode, we'll be looking into... Sports, Sports and, and Fitness, fitness marketing. marketing. Woo! Mark, I'm uh, doing push-ups as we speak right now. <laughs> I know, and keeping a very level voice, which is surprising. I've done like 300 already. Like it's just, it's not amazing. One-handed as well, because you got the microphone in the other. Yeah, I might start clapping in a second as well. If it's not going to hurt our audio. Um, but no, really interesting topic. Um, mm. We both had a green smoothie and maybe an acai bowl to to get us through this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, lots of really cool marketing principles from a health and fitness marketing perspective. Totally, totally. Why don't you um, take us a little bit of an intro so we can get a bit more specific on what we mean by sport and fitness marketing? Yeah, exactly. It. So from a uh, fitness marketing perspective, we, are, we think of fitness marketing as the sale of goods or services that enable or encourage physical self-improvement. So um, this could range from sporting equipment, it could be coaching, it could be supplementation, but anything that's going to help you just develop your overall physical self. Um, but sport, on the other hand, we're thinking is the sale of goods and services that enable competition through physical activity. So the key differentiator between the two is that fitness is just for general health, um, where a sport has a specific competitive purpose to it. Yeah, I think um, it's really good to sort of clear that up on what we're focusing on. And <clears throat> if I can add uh, another layer to that, um, I think that something I've looked at as well is um, sports as a media. Yeah. And how you can use sports media to promote your brand, even if you're not a sporting brand. Um, And the way I sort of see this all piecing together is that you've got uh, exercise and fitness and there's marketing within that and getting people to exercise and, and be more fit and all the supplements and things you talked about. There's then people getting fit by playing sport or what we'll call grassroots sport. So on the weekend, joining a team uh, and going to play. And then there's people watching sport. And these are really intrinsically linked because the more people that get fit and healthy by playing sport means that the the more people who are coming up through the sport and potentially becoming semi-professional and professional later on, which means that the sport as a media event grows. So if you have Mm. lots of talent coming up through grassroots sport into AFL, say, it means that more people playing AFL, better talent, which attracts more people to watch it, which makes it more of a media event, which other brands and companies can then align to and use to promote their products and services. Yeah, definitely. We're going to go very deep into the matrix of um, the the sport and and fitness world. And it is cool to see how it really all um, ladders up and works together Mm. Um, because you can't really have one without the other, right? And we know that on the podcast, we are a big fan of a flywheel. Yeah, it's exactly. And, and you know, a lot of uh, sort of sporting codes get this as well, and we'll dive into it later. But they, they actually invest heavily into grassroots sport, getting people to get fit and healthy playing AFL or NRL or soccer, um, because they know that they need that talent pipeline to pump up into the, the big leagues, where they're going to then promote their sport more to, to make more money through ad sales. Yeah, definitely. I guess um, starting at the top of our flywheel, um, Mark, what are some of the sports that are being watched at the moment in Australia? Yeah, I uh, was surprised with this actually because I always had this, uh, I guess, perhaps misconception in Australia that uh, that 
AFL got more people to the games, but NRL got more people on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looks like actually looking at the at the revenue from broadcasting rights uh, and ads, it's it's actually AFL, which is the more more watched event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so AFL pulls in about three hundred ninety one million dollars <throat> in terms of ad revenue uh, for the series over yeah, a wow. year. Whereas NRL is down at 317 mil. So, so there actually is significantly more spend going through ad- AFL as an advertising platform versus NRL. Um, then you've got Union. So Union's pulling in about $60 million in Australia. These are 2018 stats, mm. by the way. Uh, and then you've got uh, soccer, like A-League slash Football yeah. Federation Australia, and they're about 56 million. So that's sort of how it looks. If you look at um, events in terms of the number of eyeballs that yeah. these events bring, uh, well, what's first of all interesting is is sports is super important from a broadcasting and, and ad selling point of view because they bring in, so seven of the top 10 uh, TV events in the year are mm. sporting events. Mm. So really important. Uh, the, the first ones will be the, uh, the state of origin mm. uh, games. And then you have the AFL grand final right up there as well. And then various other sporting events throughout the top 10. But yeah, so it's, it's quite an interesting space because it's, there's so many eyeballs watching it, yeah. uh, which means it's so valuable for people to, to target with ads and brand partnerships and all that kind of stuff um, as a platform to try and promote their brands. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's fascinating, right? Like even in our most um, modern age, like we are like we as human beings, we've been watching sport for decades. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and like, you know, even before uh, TV could um, sports could be broadcast on TV, like we've always been fascinated by live sporting events. Mm. Um, it's kind of it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I think it's a really essential part of the human experience, which I is why. So. Um, it's probably still so popular in terms of um, uh, content being consumed. Yeah, and and I think it's um, it, we could do a whole podcast on like the psychology of why people support yeah. sporting <laughs> teams because there's some fascinating stuff out there. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's really interesting that when we go from sports that are being watched to sports that are being played, some of those uh, categories don't um, aren't always married up. So. From uh, a recent Ausplay study, um, so looking at what were the stop, top sports that were participated in in Australia, especially in 2019, we've got um, uh, swimming as the as the top sport that's relatively com- has a competition oh, wow. component in it, followed by running and athletics, followed closely behind by cycling, uh, football, tennis, bushwalking, basketball, golf, yoga. Australian football, netball, cricket, and my personal favorite, dancing, and the studies listed in brackets, recreational. Oh, I'm so <laughs> glad you clarified that. <laughs> that. That is a very surprising list. But as you were reading through it, I was like, oh, I thought it was going to be AFL, NRL, yeah. football, but actually they're sort of kind of like life skill sports that are very easy like everyone learns to swim or most people learn to swim as yeah. a kid so it's understandable that that would be the biggest sport that people are playing yeah definitely and it's it's interesting that the the top sports on that list are like have an element of like being non-contact sports so swimming is something you can do on your own and not have too much um like mm. uh, too many injuries from a, from a contact perspective yeah. from other competitors um but I think the, the beautiful thing about um, dancing, uh, recreational dancing within mm. this list is that 
I feel like I'm ready for the world championships. I don't know about you, Mark. <laughs> Look, I saw you on the dance floor last night, actually, Mark. And I mean, it was recreational for you. <laughs> However, the people around you, I just feel sorry for. Oh, it's fine. Um, I, I think that um, it's it's not every day you get to see uh, someone in their prime <laughs> competing in a sport that they you were, love. You were definitely in your own world, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, competing in a league of my own, <laughs> as some would say. Um, but yeah, like it's it's really interesting to see that um, the, the top sports that are being participated in, in within uh, our modern age in Australia, and, and also knowing that I think that some elements that might be feeding to this as well is that uh, like we uh, in Australia we have quite a warm climate, and you're able mm. to play these sports that have an, a strong element of being outdoor as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think moving on to the fitness industry outside of the sporting industry. Um, it's a huge industry that also feeds into the world of sport because obviously to play sport, you have to be fit. Um, mm. And the two worlds tend to blur a lot. Um, when it comes to fitness, sometimes the word training is also used because you might have to, again, have a very specialized form of fitness outside of your day-to-day sporting practice to enable you to play that sport. Um, but the overall Australian fitness industry is expected to grow by $2.4 billion by uh, the 2023 financial year. Wow. And that was done by uh, IBIS World uh, Research. That was done. That was conducted in 2018. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really really big. And this growth has been driven by budget fitness franchises such as um, Fit and Fast and Anytime Fitness, who are attracting a really high level of accessibility and yeah. also growth. So you know, really awesome franchising models that enable a lot of people to have access to to gyms affordably, and they're growing really fast for a good reason for that yeah and i think a lot of those practices that people consider training are now for some people becoming the whole sport in itself right like yoga was on that list and you could say that yoga is both a sport of its own but also a training in terms of flexibility as well so it's kind of cool to see that that's it's coming up as its own thing yeah definitely Mm. um it's interesting though right because for for years in, in many circles like you, know, you see a lot of statistics about how um, sport and fitness is growing now. A lot more people are getting active, which is awesome. Um, however, according to this uh, this study, they're actually saying that um, by the end of 2023, it might actually reach a market cap or it might actually oh. start to, to, to flatten out. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that because of our aging population in Australia, um, expe- it's expected to start countering this um, because a lot of the um, uh, people that are able to engage in these activities um, will... I kind of reached that point of saturation. Right? Saturation. So, it will be really interesting to look at this list um, in a couple of years' time, yeah. um, and to look at what the top sports are, and if there will be any other trends that will emerge because of that. Well, as you said, it's an aging population, and and maybe the top sport in a few years will be like solitaire or something. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> um, but interesting enough, when we look at if you you know drive around Australia, and you've seen a lot of different gyms, and I was really um, interested to know that. Uh, the fitness and lifestyle group Topco, um, who they they own good, the Good Life Health Club franchise, Jets Australia, but also Fitness First, which we see a lot in Sydney. Um, they're the top player, accounting for approximately thirty percent of all industry revenue. So they mm. are a really really big player. And from a marketing perspective, we know that if someone has such a huge amount of market share, they're often the ones doing market development. So they're the ones actually creating. Um, a category for people to actually purchase fitness from. So there will be any 
uh, marketing communication campaigns that these guys would be doing. Um, we should be looking towards in terms of best practice because A, they're probably doing something well if they're mm. getting to 30% market share. But also the messaging that they put out there will probably be seen by the majority of people that will consume fitness. Yeah, totally. Like they're doing a whole category job, not just the brand job. I think uh, what's interesting there as well is that even within this fitness space, we're seeing this sort of these brand tiers or brand diffusion where they've got fitness first, which might be like their mid to premium and they've mm. got good life which i think is a more premium yeah. option and then jets which is maybe less premium than fitness first so it's it's cool to see that even within fitness this this still makes sense and they're still going you know there's a way that we can sort of divide up our offering to different consumers which are without affecting our other brand yeah definitely um and then from a, a total uh, market perspective the uh brand that's following behind in terms of market share is anytime fitness and they're mm. growing really fast the they're challenger 14, yeah they're at 14.8 percent and Interestingly, if we think about any challenger brand, um, they're coming in with a pretty good offering. Like they've got pretty good gyms um, around at many different locations, but they're also offering it at a lower price. Mm. Um, so they are eating into that share quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. that's It's interesting, isn't it, how they're growing as a lower price uh, model. And, and I guess we could look at some of the like the economic trends yeah. around that and, and see, is that is that what they've done? Have they just identified that people are getting more frugal or I, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see what's going on there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think it was really cool to look into the ways in which people are moving and shaking. Um, <laughs> some like myself moving and shaking more than others on the dance floor um, for, for, for health and fitness reasons. Um, but I guess when we look at it from a marketer's perspective, um, like how, what, what are the things that we can learn from health, um, fitness and sport marketing? Mm. Um, I think the most important one to, to kick off within this space is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Always um, a good place to start. Always a good place to start. <laughs> very, very essential tool. Um, so yeah, for any listeners that are unfamiliar with the Maslow, with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, highly recommend uh, just typing into Google images. It is the... I like to think of it as the self-improvement Dorito chip. <laughs> <laughs> so it is um, a, a obviously a pyramid and a, a triangle um, that has different tiers, which help you, I guess, reach almost different levels of uh, esteem or psychological health as you go uh, through the different tiers. So at the bottom, we have um, the physical needs of human beings. Um, so that's the need for air, water, food, rest, and health. And obviously sport and fitness um, plays a huge uh, role within that base pyramid because mm. if you're moving about, if you're feeling healthy, um, you are fulfilling a lot of those physical needs. Then you ha uh, we have the need for security. So we have the need for safety, shelter, and stability. Um, and in a weird way, you know, gyms are safe spaces. <laughs> they're, they're nice places now to, to hang out. They mm. have really great security features. You will see a lot of, especially 24 hour gyms, mm. stress the importance that yes, maybe people aren't here for 24 hours of the day and it's not staffed, but here are all these different great safety features that are built in to make you, make you feel um, like you can have an awesome workout and not have to worry about anything. It, it kind of sounds like you're suggesting that maybe if you get kicked out of your apartment, there's some shelter there for you at the 24 hour gym. Yeah, yeah, potentially. Like <laughs> it's it's some, some, some of them are so nice. You might as well just move <laughs> just in. Just go work out. Yeah, exactly. We just get huge biceps. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like being in prison. <laughs> Um, then you have the uh, the social needs of human beings. If we go further up the pyramid, um, so that's the need to feel loved, belonging, and inclusion. And a lot of sports offer this, that if you're part of a team, um, you're part of a community, mm -hmm. you have a real strong sense of belonging, and you really feel included um, within a team. And even when you put that jersey on, whether you're a supporter of a team or a player of a team, you will feel that sense mm -hmm. as well. 
Um, so as we, as we move further up the pyramid, we also have uh, the ego. So the need for self-esteem, power, recognition, and prestige. And a lot of competitive sports will offer this, that if you um, are an Olympian, if you can win a gold medal, if you can win some form of tournament, whether it be at the highest level or kind of at the pub leagues on a Sunday afternoon, that is still offer an element um, of strong prestige as well. And that also plays into uh, people that are following sports on TV as yeah. well. If you are if you feel like you watch your team win a grand final, um, that can help with that as well because you're yeah. associated along for that journey. Mm which can make it so compelling to watch as well, right? Yeah, it's almost like the, the team is an extension of yourself. Yeah. And if the team's performing well, you feel good as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then the last and final piece of the pyramid is the, um, the need for self-actualization. So if you can go through all those phases, um, you have the need for development and creativity. And oftentimes people can really find themselves either through sport or through some other fitness practice that if mm. they can really find a true version of themselves, whether it's that how that they feel, if it's a, a visual goal, how they look, or if it's a competitive goal to really express themselves on the field, um, it might help tick all those boxes. So yeah. that's a really, really intricate and interesting uh, category and industry of marketing to learn from. Yeah, I think it's fascinating because I, I feel like, you know, back in the day, the, the health and fitness part on the bottom tier would have been sort of that hunter-gatherer, like you need to sort of be in good shape to be able to mm. hunt and to find food. But mm. nowadays that's less important, but it's still important just to be fit and healthy for, for health purposes. Um, but then, it, as you said, it sort of links back to like the ego and the sense of self, like is it a part of you that you want to look a certain way or be at a certain level of competitiveness? And then mm -hmm. again, self-actualization, is it really sort of helping with that as well, that top end of the pyramid? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it really goes through the, the entire chain. So mm. um, it is like a, a marketer's dream <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> the different industries, just to learn from really, like yeah. you have a, lots of interesting touch points to play with. And um, when you're aware of it and can see it in different fitness campaigns, it really, really brings, brings true. Yeah, it's almost like if you turned the, the Dorito chip upside down, you'd get your marketing funnel. <laughs> <laughs> Base level health and fitness, people who have a bit of ego tied up and then full self-actualization yeah. at the bottom. Or at least some audience segments for you to target. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Some really interesting digital stuff we could do. Now from, um, I guess, an overall uh, perspective, like, a really important concept to think about uh, within sport and fitness is something that was really close to our hearts, Mark, and that is the subscription model. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we love a subscription model. It's a really, really fascinating business model and one that's really cool to, to work and learn from mm. as a marketer. Um, and so if we think about gyms that they operate, uh, operate by offering you a gym membership for a specified period of time, they'll have to spend um, some money to make sure that you know about their gym in the first place, their cost per acquisition. Um, and once they've done that with some pretty cool uh, campaigns that you'll pay that reoccurring fee for that set period of time um, and they will need you to hold that fee um, for a, a period of time that they'll, they'll work out where they can break even and then start to turn a profit as that goes on. Mm. Um, but the interesting thing about the subscription model is that you do really need people to hold on to that for quite a long period of time, yeah. right? So they need to focus on retaining members once they do have them acquired because they've already spent that cost to mm. get them there in the first place. But it's why the things like the 24-hour gym model is really successful at the moment and is growing so fast because 24-hour gyms can offer operate without staff um, and wages can flow down to consumers in the form of uh, cheaper memberships, which means that they can offer these pretty cheap memberships to, to a lot of people and have really high volume of subscriptions and maybe make a low margin, mm. um, which then we know that there's two ways that we can grow and which is sometimes through volume or through price. 
um, and specifically in here, they're growing through a lot of volume, um, and that's helping their their, their their bottom line as well. Yeah, um, gyms are yeah really interesting in this sense because you do need to keep people there. Um, being a member of a gym, I feel yeah. like is quite uh, quite psychological in the sense that even if you're mm. not going very frequently or getting the uh, I guess the benefit of mm. you know you're paying X amount but you're only going once every two weeks, it still makes people feel better. Yeah, um, because they have the membership. So there's already I guess one part of it where the job's done for some of those consumers who people who might just keep the membership because they feel better because they go once every fortnight um but you're right then it's about keeping them there that that acquisition cost is usually pretty high we know media is pretty high if you need mm. to get people aware of your brand uh so to keep them there is quite important and that's where i think things like offers come in so you might have uh, an introductory offer which is part of your cost of acquisition mm. where you go you know if you join our gym today uh we will also maybe give you a discount on the the initial sign-up fee is a classic um, or we'll offer you some personal trainer sessions to get you started so what that does is it gives another person a person another reason to join up in the first place and make that initial sort of financial commitment but then it also makes the experience better for them straight away because they go in they get the personal trainer session and give them a bit of a routine which means that they don't feel like they can't turn up to the gym because they don't know what to do someone's mm -hmm. already helps them with that so it's another cost but it's something that's going to keep people there um, but then as you touched on you need to keep them there for a long time so what can they do what offers can they keep giving you to keep you to get you to stay and I, I think that's where you know it can fall off a little bit because if you've made the decision to quit your gym membership it's kind of hard to get someone to <laughs> to change their mind on that yeah definitely and I think that's why you see um lots of different offers that happens at different times of the year um so for example you know, a lot of gyms know that um if you look at the concept of seasonality that uh people will be looking for a new gym oftentimes in the new year um, and they know there's going to be a huge burst of volume where they can get some awesome yearly contracts mm. to, to sign people up to. And they'll try to spend a lot of their maybe media money at that time to make mm. sure that they're the gym that people would choose at that period. But then maybe as the year goes on, it gets a little bit slower. You know, it gets a bit colder in Australia around the mm. middle of the year. Um, and maybe people go into the gym less and they can offer some really cool incentives to get people to sign up for another year. Um, by talking about summer so lots of different discounts that you can offer even if it comes down to offering merch when you sign up that mm. a lot of gyms offer backpack packages or a towel or some or some other form of incentives that makes you feel really good about taking that first step and signing up to their community yeah and i think what we're getting to here as well is is it sort of touching on that idea we talked about of being part of the team putting on mm. the jersey and feeling like you belong mm. uh is it's, it's all part of it isn't it like you have to be a member you can't just go casually usually at most of these places yeah so you sort of you go there maybe you get the merch the hat the shirt you put it on you're in the uniform you see other people at the gym that you see regularly and you you high five after a yeah. great set if that's what you do at gyms <laughs> um, i don't know um but but yeah it's that piece of community there um but something you just mentioned there yeah. and i think is a whole other principle we can talk about is the idea of seasonality and then trends mm. that we can tap into to get people to maybe pick up fitness more or get back into the gym so you talked about maybe in winter gyms maybe start talking about summer you know get ready for summer get the sort of the beach body ready 
Um, mm. I think there's, there's through time, there's been these trends that come up and they're these like weird body part trends where <laughs> yeah. everyone seems to focus on in media and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and at, that become reasons for people to go to the gym. And, and what I'm getting at here is that first of all, it's, it's a, it's something that you can play on, I guess, in a way that's ethical, um, to get people to want to be the, their fittest self and join mm. the gym. But then it's also, uh, if you think about other fitness companies who are making either supplements or equipment or things like that, it's a way for them to identify body trends that people mm. are going on and make equipment and supplements that help with that specific trend. So mm. I'm going to list out a few that I came across in my yeah, research no, of, of some of them are really long standing trends that have just had sort of, I guess, like a high flux period and they go mm. up and down, but they're always there. So ones like that are like washboard abs. So like that's something that, you know, through the 70s, 80s, that started to become a thing that washboard abs, really flat stomachs. And that, that was something that got people into the gym. And then you start getting pieces of equipment like the Ab Crunch Pro mm. and all of this stuff that people are selling on TV and installing in their gyms. Um, you've had the more recent trend of leg day. Mm. Um, so just in general, talking about leg day, but then talking about how some people have chicken legs if they don't have do leg day or people who look like my favorite term, the Cornetto, um, <laughs> yeah. which is like they look like at this weird V because they've worked out up the top on their shoulders yeah. and arms but haven't done legs. Um, and then more recently, you've got things like people focusing on thighs and butts. Mm. So really getting into squatting as, as, a, as a bit more of a trend. Um, you've got even sayings coming out of some of these things. Like there's one from the past, which still, I guess, rings true to some people, which is curls get the girls, mm. the bicep curls, that is not the hair. Um, and even things more recently, like stretching, uh, and leg rollers becoming a bit more of a trend. So there's all, all these sort of things that pop up over time. And if you can sort of understand what the trend is, you can either talk about it to get people to come join your gym or come to your gym more, or you could create whole other products around those trends. Um, just before I finish on that, actually, mm. my personal favorite, which was a very short lived trend was shredding for stereo. Ah, <laughs> stereo so, Sonic yes. being the music festival. Right. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, so, so for those of us, uh, for those that are uh, listening to the pod and are unfam uh, not familiar with stereo, stereo was a uh, fitness competition, but also a music festival. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't really a fitness competition. It was a, uh, like an electronic music festival. Mm. I'm not sure if it's still going on. No, I, I'm pretty sure it got cancelled. I mean, oh, I can't say I ever yeah. went, but um, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was uh, famous for people that would go to the music festival and be very shredded um, and would show off their very aesthetic physiques while fist pumping very aggressively yeah i believe it coincided with like just before summer or something so it was yeah. probably like your first event to show off the body right mm. no it's fantastic i think um sales of neon stringers and singlets um really went through the roof at that time as well yeah real, really seasonal those <laughs> products <there. laughs> um but yeah no definitely i think uh understanding what people want and what they need as consumers really comes back to any marketing category and all it is and knowing what people are wanting to exercise within the fitness space can be so pivotal to uh, be a successful marketer in this mm. space. Yeah, definitely. I think um, building off that, like it's really interesting when you think about the difference between merch or equipment as well within, uh, within the health, sport and fitness space. So if we think about some of the ab rollers as being pieces of equipment that really help you to have a functional purpose and something maybe you might use behind closed doors or something that's not meant to be seen and not really meant to be branded as much, um, but will help you fulfill a really specific physical goal. We think of that as equipment, so as a functional purpose, whereas merch has almost like 
a creative um, and a social purpose to mm. help you uh, feel like you're belonging to a, di- a different part of a community um, because you have that particular piece of merch. And that might be something like a football jersey. So you might have the similar material mm. that you could use in the gym just to work out in because it's really comfortable and um, serves a great purpose. But that would just be very functional as opposed to you could get the same style of uh, shirt, but it could be branded and could tell let people know that you're supporting this team. Mm. And I think understanding where your... Um, where your product lies within that matrix is really important because it can help you speak to the right people in the right way possible. Yeah, and I think, you know, both sides of it, whether it's merch or um, functional sort of equipment, have reasons to charge a premium Mm. as well. So I think either way you go, it it doesn't matter, but you can really work out why people are buying that piece of equipment or merch from you and then start to tap into that a little bit more and start charging premium as well. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting to see how, like, that can manifest itself either in a brand community and or it could be a kind of real sporting community or a grassroots community mm. um and the, the the line between merch and equipment can blow very very quickly yeah so if you think about some pieces of, of things we could look at it as equipment um you could also argue that they're almost like brand merch so if you have uh for example maybe some uh nike tops or even if you're into yoga maybe some lululemon products um, if you're wearing those products, you might not belong to a real physical community. You might not go to a yoga studio where everyone is wearing the exact same lemon uniform, mm. or maybe you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's most <laughs> yoga studios. <laughs> um, but by buying into that product, you might be buying into a larger community of people that also wear that product and discuss that product online. Mm. Um, and knowing, and if you're a brand that isn't uh, forming a brand community, Trying to figure out a way if there is for you to, a way for you to do that could be really, really, really helpful because it might help you nudge from the equipment space into the equipment and merch space. Yeah, I think brand communities are super interesting. Uh, one of the best ones I've seen where it's a, a brand which sort of doesn't have anything to do with fitness in terms of equipment or anything specific. They, they have realized that the people who um, use their product are fitness savvy. And that is a, a small brand called Fishbowl oh. uh, here in Sydney. Uh, and they, they so for anyone who doesn't know, Fishbowl sells like a, like Pokeball style mm. food. So it's like r- rice with fresh fish and that kind of stuff. Really yummy. Um, but what they realized was that a lot of the people that were buying their food were doing it because it was very healthy food that gave them the energy to train. So Fishbowl mm. actually started up their own running club. That's awesome. So I think it's such a good point you've made around, you know, if you're uh, being used in the fitness space, like, you know, people use your shoes and your shoes might not be functional weightlifting shoes, say, but people mm. who are weightlifting are wearing them. How can you start to build a community around the people who, who do wear those shoes for weightlifting, say? Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's a really really cool thing to tap into if you can, and and if not, and if that's not something you're recognizing that your consumers are already doing, trying to find ways to proactively do it mm. would be a really really good strategy to take yeah. as well. I think um, moving on from that, like another cool principle to think about within the health, sport, and fitness space um, is the idea of sponsorships or endorsements as well. So. Um, and that's something that's quite prominent when you do have these big brand communities as well. And if you think about the difference um, between the two, so if you think about sponsorships as just straight up a brand paying to be a part of an event mm. or, or a sporting team um, versus an endorsement being uh, an influencer that 
kind of says that your product is really, really good and it's a lot more personal. So it's an individual endorsing your product mm. rather than an event being associated with your product. Um, and it's cool because like endorsement deals have been part of sport yeah. <laughs> since there were sporting brands, right? And it's cool because you, you think about them as almost like the original influencers that, um, you know, Nike famously were able to start up their brand and, and to challenge like Adidas uh, on a really large level because they were able to get endorsements from a lot of top runners at the time. Yeah. Um, and it's such a cool strategy, right? Because it's like the original five-star review. Yeah. <laughs> it lets people know that your product is actually really, really good and is also really good functionally as well. Mm. Well, I think this is where we start to see a lot of that crossover from like grassroots sport, uh, sport and fitness into this media space because mm. you're right, it both goes both ways. You could be a sporting brand using endorsements and sponsorship deals to uh, really build up your brand and your product to show that it, you know, it's a really effective product for that sport. So an example of that might be that uh, you might be a football boot brand and mm. you decide to team up with a leading team and they all have to wear your brand of boots which gives it that credibility like if this successful team wears our boots then our boots must be good mm. um, but then there's also just using sports players and teams as sponsorship vehicles for other brands products and services and and the big one here is if you work for a brand which is quite hard to build in an emotional connection to your brand because the service that you offer is something that is very, I guess, uh, utilitarian, mm. um, then this can be a great way to try and drive some emotional connection through using a sport. It's like mm. an association. So usually banks and um, insurance companies are the, the, the two that get really into sports uh, <laughs> sponsorship, yeah, right. um, which sounds a bit funny, but think about next time you're at a game or watching a game on TV and look at the big brands that are sponsoring, mm. like maybe even the whole league of sport. And you'll see a lot of banks and insurance companies and mm. some other things as well, but th those are the two I really notice. Um, so if you think about our local AFL team, uh, the Sydney Swans, they are, uh, they are sponsored by both QBE Insurance and Citibank. Mm. Uh, so, and, and you think, if you think about that in isolation, it's kind of weird, right? Like those two companies are not trying to prove anything um, specific about their product or service by sponsoring a team. They're yep. just trying to build that emotional association and they'll spend a lot of money to do that. Uh, and they try and then reinforce it by building a sort of nice brand connection mm. during the event. So if you go to a Sydney Swans game, at halftime, there's like the the chance that if you hold up your big Citibank sign that you were given at the start of the game, so you got 40,000 people holding up a big Citibank sign on TV. It's like the uh, best out-of-home <laughs> advertising placement ever. Yeah. It's just human beings holding up yeah. the ad. Yeah. And going crazy because if the camera pans onto them and zooms in, yeah. they get chosen to win $1,000. If you think of that, <laughs> you just got 40,000 people to hold up your brand for $1,000. It's pretty amazing. Um, so th this is what they try and do. And they'll pay big money for these positive associations. The same with QBE Insurance, which is another sponsor yeah. of the Swans. They do the same thing. Um, so yeah, sponsorship, big way for brands that have nothing to do with fitness and sport to, to build an emotional connection with a consumer. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's cool, right? Because that sponsorship, I'm, so, I'm sure, has a positive emotional flow on effect to something which we've spoken about on another podcast episode, which is employer branding. Mm. So I'm sure that the people at Citibank, when they know that they're associated with the Swans, probably have a great feeling. It probably gives yeah. them like an awesome 
uh, sense of energy and, and, and purpose when they're associated with something like that. Yeah, and often these deals go a little bit deeper than yeah. just the, the, the signage. So if you worked at you know one of these companies, they might have a box at the game, which they then, you know, every time the game's on, they'll be like, hey, to these 10 people, you guys get to go to the box, maybe share it around. So you're right, employer branding, they get to get involved. They'll probably get access to the players as part of that contract. Mm. Maybe once a year, some of the star players come into the office to do a talk or something. Mm. And that, again, a really great way to engage staff. Yeah, definitely. I think um, uh, building off that, it's when we think about the players on the field as well and that mm. are, are having individual um, endorsement deals. Um, it, it's cool, right? Because you have individuals that will often, you know, act as sponsors for other brands. So you might have, for example, Roger Federer um, sponsoring uh, many, many watch companies within his lifetime <laughs> <laughs> and for very good reason. Yeah. Um, but you also have um, athletes that will have uh, endorsement deals for specific products within specific companies and they'll work maybe with the innovation arm of that, uh, of that company as part of their endorsement deal to create a personalized product mm. that um, has specific innovation points that helps them perform um, really well in the field. And those types of products, whether it's a basketball shoe, um, for example, are really, really cool because a that when the people are going to buy that shoe, there's an element of merch there that you're mm. wearing the same boots or shoes as your favorite player. And that's been specifically created for them. There's this awesome like R&D component as well, that oftentimes that the athletes themselves are like the best uh, key uh, opinion leaders to learn what pain points they have with their current products and to help innovating. So it's an awesome win-win for both um, the athletes and also the company as well. Yeah, I think we've talked about it before uh, with Formula One yeah. being a sport that has heavy R&D uh, where they all these sort of car companies are mm. at the track to learn. Uh, and I think it was yeah. Honda that said that they're in IndyCar pretty much for that purpose, just to make their road cars that people can buy better. So yeah. I think that element of working with a player to, to make something together that you can actually physically sell to a consumer as a functionally better product, but also as a bit of merch is, is really cool. Yeah, definitely. I think um, if we look at the top paid um, endorsed athletes for 2018, there is some huge numbers throwing around oh, as well, yeah. which means that um, from a marketing perspective, you think about your marketing budget as one of these brands um, that might be associated with these athletes, that they're probably paying these fees because there would be a huge return on investment for them, that they mm -hmm. wouldn't be throwing around these big numbers if there wasn't something that was concrete in I them think, as well, right? Yeah, you're right. Like It's big numbers, but I think the brands that are doing this really get long-term growth 100 percent. because this is not something where you're going to spend that you know 100 million dollars to have that athlete as part of your brand for one year to drive short-term sales you're doing this as an association for your brand over the long term i think it's really smart when you choose the right people and you're right it can be hugely expensive but i think we have to view all of this as an investment for the long term rather than a short-term gain yeah definitely and it's interesting right because if you're within um the sporting world having a uh an, an endorsement deal with one athlete which has a non-compete closure in it can almost be a competitive advantage for you for yeah. the long term and if we look at the top paid endorsed athletes for 2018 they were roger federer um who just alone had a 300 million dollar deal with uniqlo and there's a clause in there that ensures that the 37 year old will continue to be paid even after he stops playing tennis so really, really long-term focus there i love that and it's followed by lebron james and also cristiano ronaldo and 
when you think about all these three athletes, the other two as well also have really, really long-term endorsement mm. deals that yeah, last after they're playing. They're all 10-year deals, yeah. right? Which, yeah, I, I think, again, they've these companies have really chosen well and yeah. they've put a lot of thought into it because what they've thought about is, look, Federer is 37. He's probably going to retire in a few years. Mm. Um, hopefully he keeps playing, but if he doesn't, because they think he's the right person and the right fit for their brands, mm. he he's going to continue to be that right person, not because he's just playing sport, but because he's a media figure. And and I think they've really understood that and they're not like they're not concerned about that, which is cool. Yeah. Um, but it made me think about like, if you're going to pick uh, a player, like a specific mm. person in sport to sponsor, what kind of questions do you need to ask yeah. about this very, very heavy investment? Because it's such a big call. And I can imagine, you know, you're the, you're the marketing manager for Nike or something. And, you know, it's a big company, but I, going to the boss or the CMO and saying, hey, look, I want to fork out a billion to, <laughs> to, to pay, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo or whoever it is, is yeah. that's a tough conversation. Yeah, you'd be like questioning what he's buying when he's like grocery list every Sunday <laughs> for yeah. that portion of the marketing yeah. message. Yeah. yeah, like how much money does he need? <laughs> but uh, so I, I start to think about, well, what are those questions you'd ask yourself yeah. if you're into this? So some of the things I was thinking was, you know, first of all, does the athlete truly represent your brand identity? Mm. So they might be a famous athlete who is very good at what they do. Um, but do they outside of sport as well really represent your brand? So I think uh, the one I really like is Rolex uh, mm. and Roger Federer. Um, if we pick one of our Roger Federer yeah. sponsorships, <laughs> um, because he, Roger Federer really embodies uh, the Rolex brand just by being who he is, which is if you look at Rolex watches, they're sort of like luxury, but not the most luxury watch you can buy. They're actually quite utilitarian and sporty. Mm. Um, so they're always based around like diving or travel and exploration or or flying and aviation. So mm. I feel like Roger Federer sort of embodies that because he's sporty, uh, mm. but he's also quite a classy, well-traveled gentleman. Mm. I feel like that's worked quite well and that would work whether he's playing or tennis or not. So if you really think about, do they just represent the brand identity as a whole? Mm. Um, what's their audience? So do they have the same audience that you're trying to target or do they overlap a lot with your current audience that you're already reaching with your media, whether it's TV or digital or whatever it is? Because if there is too much overlap, maybe it's not worth investing that much money. Mm. Um, but if there is not that much overlap and it's an audience you've identified that you want to drive business with, then maybe it does make a lot of sense because that audience would be particularly expensive for you to convert. They're very top of the funnel and maybe don't even have awareness of your brand. Mm. Um, but I think other things you can think about is, you know, is it efficient? So is it the right audience? But then maybe just do some simple like CPM calculations. You know, you're spending this money. Could you, with a massive global television buy, actually get the same audience uh, and then and then push them down the funnel? So I think it's it sounds like a silly one, but actually mm. you might need to do that calculation or you probably would to prove that this is a good investment for your brand. Um, and then I think the final thing as well is, do they have lots of other sponsorships? <laughs> so I think that as an athlete, these these people need to be really careful and not dilute their worth. Yeah. Uh, because if you have lots of sponsorships, you might make good short-term money, but mm. in the long term, you might dilute your value and therefore less people will come to, to sponsor you. Yeah. Um, and some ways that you can think about that is, you know, if you're a brand that operates, say, only in Asia, could you do a deal with someone who doesn't have many deals in Asia specifically, mm. but so you own that sponsorship? market for that person there are things that you can work through to try and make sure that you don't go with someone who's seen as being associated with too many other brands 
Yeah, definitely. I think as well, like the uh, from a marketing perspective, the thing to keep in mind is that when they are, when an athlete is going to be doing many different sponsorship deals, they're going to be af- appearing in many different types of creative, um, in many different points of media as well. Um, and you want to make sure that if you're working with a heavily promoted athlete that's in many different advertisements, that firstly that the uh, audience isn't going to get fatigued by this athlete Mm. by seeing them everywhere and maybe not it might not resonate as much with them but also when they see uh the face of the athlete that you're sponsoring that they are going to be associating it with your brand because the worst thing would be that if you uh put a lot of um media budget behind promoting a lot of creative and then people will see the athlete and see them and associate them with another brand and therefore your earned media dollars are actually going towards one of their other sponsors rather than your brand itself yeah, it's classic misattribution and it's a brand asset that you don't completely own. So yeah. you have to be really careful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think also within the sport, health and fitness world of marketing, like one of the almost existential principles that come into play, this is one of my like weirdly favorite marketing principles, which is if we think about human beings kind of always wanting the promise of a positive future. So bear with me. <laughs> yeah, I'm staying quiet for this one. <laughs> Welcome to my yoga retreat <laughs> on the podcast. But if we think about um, the need of uh, an immediate reward versus a future reward and also the promise of having a future reward ongoing as well is mm. really, really important. And the way I think this plays out within the world of sport and fitness marketing is that it's almost similar to buying a lotto ticket when you set up to a healthy pursuit that yes, you are aiming to get the direct health benefits of maybe that first workout or that first PT session. But you also like the idea that once you do this, you also have uh, this particular body or be able to perform this particular movement within time. And by doing that, you're also investing in your health long, long, long term. So maybe 30 years from now, you will have the uh, additional benefits of being healthy. Um, It's similar to buying a lot of ticket in that when you buy a lot of ticket, yes, you have the immediate purchase and you have that physical ticket in your hand. But before the Powerball is announced, you're also thinking constantly about what you are going to do in the future if you want that money. Mm. And it's almost like the same way it works out within sport and fitness marketing. When you buy that football jersey, you're thinking about what it's going to be like when your team competes at the new start of the new season in your new jersey. And what it's going to be like and what you're going to do when they win the tournament mm. and offers you that benefit of that positive future. Or when you think about the uh, particular photos you can take <laughs> at summer at Stereosonic <laughs> once you shred it down with your Fitness First membership um, within 12 weeks. And that positive of, of that motivation of working towards something really, really plays out within sport and fitness marketing. And it's an important thing to consider within creative, but also within uh, your sales tactics as well and your sales manuals and processes, uh, but also just the way you position your products as well. Yeah, I think um, it's, a, it's a cool point. Uh, and you might actually achieve that goal, whereas a lotto ticket is just so unlikely that you would yeah. win. And I think it's something that, you know, if you think about fitness like that, it makes it easier to sell to someone in a way because you're really playing on something truly emotional. Mm. Uh, it means that people are willing to 
pay more for something like that and you're really targeting that top of the you know the self-actualization of that Dorito chip yeah <laughs> so i think that yeah it's 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 a, it's a good thought i like it um i'm there with you on that journey <laughs> yeah, um but i i think that yeah it's 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 very interesting and and the more that you have something underneath just if you join us you will be healthier if you sell that if you join us you're going to get to that next place you're going to get to that future you i think it's so much more valuable to the consumer you're trying to sell it to and therefore hopefully easier to sell yeah definitely and i think it's it's one of the learnings we can take into other marketing categories as well that knowing whether your product can play the role of fulfilling an immediate uh benefit but also a future intangible benefit um but also recognizing if you're uh, marketing a product that just doesn't have a potent a really tangible future uh benefit as well mm. um and knowing that you have to capitalize on the immediate benefits of your product um, just helps you give a lot more focus and clarity to yeah. some of the strategic decisions as well. You've actually made me remember something I found in my research, which I think is a good example of, yeah. of setting that sort of future you yeah. uh, and selling that vision, which was a, um, which was a, a company called uh, Little Fit Bride. Mm. I think that's what it was on my Fit Bride, Little Fit Bride, something like that. But the idea was that they, they understood that people want to get fit and look good before their wedding, yeah. maybe purely for the wedding photos, or maybe just they want to be that as a moment in their life that when they yeah. get married, they're at their physical best. Uh, and they sell PT courses uh, and group training, which is about that sort of 12 weeks before the wedding or 18 weeks before the wedding, what you need to do to make sure on that day you're at your best. And I think mm. it's a great example of going, you know, what are you going to be? What's that moment in your life? It's a big, big moment in the life to get married. And then we're going to sell that to you with a, with frankly, a personal training program, which is going to be the same as most other personal training programs. Yeah, definitely. I think it's an awesome segmentation approach. And mm. it's the cool thing about it, right, is that the program they're probably doing is probably not too different to a, a standard um, fitness or PT course exactly. over a set period of time to mm. get into general shape. Um, but they're just speaking about it and positioning it differently. Like there's probably not a specific type of bicep curl that's going to get um, everyone into uh, the best shape um, on their on their, on their their day. Mm. But just the, the act of positioning it as you're doing it for this reason, we're targeting this segment is um, is really cool as well. Yeah, and, and I feel like you could do that so much with the same product. You could have this one exercise program, mm. which you just change the messaging on and target different people with your media like you could have the you've got the fit bride course and then you've got the stereo shredding course mm. and all of these things that people buy into and they they know that they're working towards that future self that they they want yeah definitely i think it's cool right because everyone is in the other day buying health and fitness but being really specific and targeting that is probably just going to make it a lot easier as well for the consumers like they're probably mm. there like looking for the right program um for their need and you know, the more that, as you know, marketers, you can help them with that is the better. Yeah. And, and we spoke about up the top subscription. The hardest thing is keeping people in. Mm. The more you're aligned on that vision that you're working towards with the consumer, the easier it should be to keep them right. Because they're at a normal gym. There's a multitude of reasons why people might drop out yeah. of that contract. But with this, you know, you're, you're both working towards that very same goal. So there shouldn't really be that many reasons that someone drops out. Yeah, exactly. It. Well, Mark, I think we, um, we've, like learned a lot of really cool principles so far. Um, but why don't we jump, jump into some case studies we found that kind of embodied some of these principles that we thought were interesting. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, for this week, I found a, a cool case study on a, uh, ath 
athletic wear company called Gymshark. So they're mm. a big um, active wear clothing company um, and they're completely direct to consumer. Um, and they are growing really, really fast um, across the world at the moment. So really, really cool company. They launched in the UK in 2011 and they, identif- they identified this really specific gap in the market for on-trend affordable active wear for people to lift weights in the gym. And that sounds like something that like, you know, nowadays is a problem that is quite clear and has been solved. But I guess in 2011, it wasn't really that Mm. clearly defined yet. Um, A lot of people at the time that were just doing a general like five day, six day gym split and were just using the different machines or weights were lifting weights in either kind of uh, older clothes, maybe Um, something that was a bit more baggy and loose or maybe something that was a little bit too high tech and athletic and it maybe restricted their movement patterns and let them do that. And also the top of the line active at the time was really, really expensive. So it was something that you had to fork out a lot mm. for. And if you were going to the gym, you know, more than five to six sessions a week, you could spend a lot of money on, yeah. on, on that clothing as well. Um, and those types of clothing at the time were targeted towards, they're almost targeted towards uh, older consumers as well. And there was a whole new generation coming up, especially that were really affected by uh, online uh, influence as well that were ready for this market. Um, so they Gymshark started uh, with the aim of creating fitness gear for this market. Um, so And they wanted to create really aesthetically pe- pleasing activewear. So it looked just as good at the gym um, as well as a night out. And that was really important because they recognized that a lot of people were going to the gym and were taking photos of themselves either going to the gym or after or at the gym. Oh. Um, so they wanted to make sure that when people were taking these photos, A, it was going to help them look really physically flattering yeah. um, by making sure that it had made them look really fit. Um, but also that they looked quite cool as well. Which I thought was really interesting. Mm. Um, but the really cool thing about this is they've like managed to maintain this like cult-like status by refusing to sell through third-party retailers like JD Sports or other sporting companies. And they sell exclusively direct to consumer, which as marketers as a business model we know is awesome because it means that they don't have to pay um, a retailer margin and they can just ship directly um, to the people itself. Um, but the cool thing about that as well is that they sponsor like these high level influencers called that they refer to as Gymshark athletes and uh, they collaborate on innovation as well as promoting the product. But mm. the interesting thing about these athletes is that they were almost created by Gymshark. So they're not athletes that necessarily compete in a specific sport. Some of them are professional bodybuilders. But a lot of them are just general people that are really high-level influencers and are known for having really good physiques on Instagram and maybe teaching people about the way that they achieve that physique. And it's cool because Gymshark has really like uh, ridden the wave of these people becoming this specific style of health and fitness influencer and helping them develop products that help them do their job just as good as well, right? Mm. Which is really, really cool. Um, and they blend the offline and the online world with Gymshark meetups where uh, they set up these expo style events where people can shop for these products that are usually only sold online in real life. And they have these beautiful retail setups that they set up for a limited amount of time. Um, and they can also meet their favorite athletes, which is also really cool. So they have these Gymshark influences that they fly around the world to go to these specific retail events. 
Um, and the best part of this is that they document all of this for their social media. And because they're a direct-to-consumer brand, this this awesome cycle funnels where the retail store um, pays for the content which they can create, but the store itself is also an actual store. Mm. <laughs> so they're also generating sales by doing that. Yeah. And it's this awesome flywheel which, will, which um, tends to accelerate. Um, and these events are getting so large that people, they're actually having to sell tickets for these events, wow. which is also an awesome income stream because on top of that, they're also just able to sell tickets and make an income stream on people attending the events to purchase mm. products, which is really, 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 really interesting. Um, but the thing that they're also really doing well is that they are creating a lot of really good user-generated content or UGC content. Uh, by creating these different workout challenges that users can replicate online. So they just completed a recent one called the Gymshark 66 workout. And a lot of people were encouraged to uh, post themselves joining in on this journey um, of a, a daily challenge to work out. Um, and all these people were posting content and themselves completing the challenge in the Gymshark clothing, which in itself created yeah. this own like online meta sport um, which is really, really fascinating. I think it was a really, really good example of user-generated content done well. But as we, as we spoke about in the principles of the pod, creating a brand community, right? Mm. So people were communicating within this hashtag. Um, and the best part of it is that Gymshark, by doing these different challenges and sponsoring their athletes, have also blended from equipment to merch. Mm. So you know that if you are wearing this clothing and you're part of this challenge, that you are supporting this movement and you're almost part of these athletes' lives as well, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, that's such a cool case study. Like they nailed so many of those principles we talked about. And I think there's there's two things I really like about this. One is that you sort of, uh, you've created these sort of new sport mm. in a sense, like going to the gym wasn't a sport. It was like the training, like we talked about up top. And we saw the disparity between the sort of the sports that people are playing and the sports that people watch. And I feel like this is bringing those two worlds together almost. And then the, yeah, the second part I really like is that brand community element because, you know, by itself, sport teams have brand community community and gyms have brand community. So by having a clothing brand, which mm. is by wearing it, you feel like part of the community and then you can play the sport, if mm. you will, and put it on social media and have it shared uh, is, is super cool. And again, like smashing those worlds together. Yeah, it's super, super inspiring. And I think that the fact that they've grown so fast, they're now valued as a $128 million company as of um, 2018. And they're still growing and haven't expanded to all wow. global markets. When you think about them being a D2C brand, it almost automatically enables them to spread and become a global brand really quickly in that mm. short period of time. So um, yeah, hats off to them. Really cool thing to really cool. to learn from. But if you're listening, check out their Instagram page and... and um, yeah, like just look at the way that they're creating their own creative for their specific audience. It's really, really inspiring. Yeah, very cool. Uh, I've got a case study, which is, I guess, you know, talking to that point of like how how does a sport bring people through from that grassroots level and invest in that all the way up into the big leagues where they make some money with the media that they do. Uh, and the case study I have found is AFL. Mm. Uh, so we spoke about AFL a little bit before and, and this was one that I came across locally, which... Uh, is a campaign called the AFL Mini Legends Series. So what these guys did is that they they essentially were able to drive awareness of grassroots AFL to get people to play, but then use that same campaign to drive the top tier AFL 
uh, sport as well. And also whilst doing that, use that to show that the kids that were playing in the grassroots leagues, that they could potentially one day be the star in, in the, the big leagues up there uh, in the AFL. Um, and what they did was, and by the way, this was done through National Australia Bank as well, which is their, awesome, their primary yeah. sponsor for the AFL. Um, so again, National Australia Bank trying to make an emotional connection and drive awareness for their brand. Um, they took legendary moments from real AFL games of the past, and then they used special effects to edit in lookalike kids who are actually playing in the grassroots league in the place of the legend in the video, but not the other players around them, just the legend and who's in the, in the moment to show people that a, it's quite funny. You see these kids like going up for massive marks over these, awesome. these big players, but also show these kids, look, that that could be you. Show the parents mm. that could be your kids. So get them involved in grassroots AFL. But then also just a really fun campaign for the AFL in general and for the bank, right? Mm. It's a positive, fun, emotional campaign for them. Um, so I think what it does is, as we said, is, is it's driving grassroots sports. So you're showing kids and parents, hey, AFL is fun. Your kid could be a star go play grassroots sport. Mm. It's doing a job for the bank. Uh, so the bank is going, hey, we're a cool uh, you know, bank. We've got this sort of emotional connection with AFL and that's going to make people like us a little bit more and hopefully bank with us. Mm. Uh, and then you've got something for the, the top tier, as we said. Um, it started as a YouTube video, uh, which when you look at sport, you, we're seeing that a lot of people, watching sport on TV is still big although declining over the last couple of years, but still really big events. We said seven of those top 10 events. But what they're seeing is that when people are watching live games on TV or even at live games, they're more likely to be second and third screening. So we know that a multimedia approach is the way, and it's almost like the two plus two equals five. If you mm. use multimedia, there's synergies there, but especially in sport and live sport, if you can get content onto YouTube and then spread it out onto social media during games and then after games, you're gonna get way more engagement. So that's exactly what they did. They, it was a YouTube video that they then cut up into this snackable content and, and fed out through social media during games, as well as a mass awareness came out outside of games so that sort of seasonality as well came into play where when games are on there's a lot of people talking and they leverage that with that content but then outside of games where not many people are talking they're doing their mass awareness job um, so overall I just thought it was a really cool way to drive all ends of a sport to get people in to get people striving towards the top and then driving the sport itself at a very top level yeah it's awesome really 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 cool case study and mm. I'm just I wish I could put my um myself into the uh, the, the video with the special effects as well. I, I think that's next year. They've been doing it for I think it's two or three years now because yeah. it's been so successful. They keep doing more iterations. I think maybe next year they should create like the online tool where you can put yourself as a kid yeah. <laughs> in there, just you know taking these massive marks or these like you know grand final winning goals. It'd be pretty cool. We'll have to do a special edition of the marketing show um album artwork for uh. <laughs> be awesome. again, just yeah. me getting up on your shoulders to catch the mark <laughs> yeah exactly no really cool case studies and um really cool industry to to learn from and take some principles into other marketing areas as well so we've hoped you guys have enjoyed the learnings this week as much as we have mm. now mark as we know um as marketers we obviously want to always be interested in the world around us um and on that note on a curious note, what have you found interesting this week? Yeah, well, just to, to clarify, I've gone outside the world around us uh, this week, which is a couple of weeks ago, it was the 50th anniversary of the uh, landing on the moon, the NASA mission. Yeah. And, and while it was a, a few weeks ago now, uh, I have been 
fascinated with the NASA YouTube channel. That's awesome. <laughs> so it was something that I was watching some things that were popping up online about the 50th anniversary and, and mm. just what, kind of wanted to learn more because like, you know, space is something that has always been there for us. Like ever since we've been born, people mm. have gone into space and, you know, the moon landing had already happened. And it, it, it sounds weird, but it wasn't that exciting for me until now when I really started to research yeah. it and watch these videos that NASA put up on YouTube to further understand just like the level of thinking that goes into putting humans into space. Um, so it's a, it's a really big shout out to go check out the NASA YouTube channel yeah, nice. because what you can find there, my favorite videos were people who had been living in the space station, the International Space Station mm. for months, like three to six months. They've been up there walking you through what life is like up there. Um, and there's two really cool takeouts that I had from this. One is that uh, a lot of these astronauts say that when they're up there, they, they look back at the world and they'll go past, you know, their home country, say they'll fly by, you know, mm. 10, 20 times in a day, maybe even more because of the speed that they're going around the earth. Uh, and it gives them that perspective that all of that's happening down there. And sometimes all that stuff happening down there isn't important and you need to sort of literally take that <laughs> helicopter view or spaceship view. Um, so it gives people a lot of, uh, I guess, clarity around what's important in their lives when they're astronauts. Mm. And I think whilst we may not be astronauts, we can you know, take a little bit of a lesson out of that. Um, but then the other thing is just the logistics of it are fascinating. Yeah. Like they're walking, the thing that blew my mind, and this is so simple and I should have got this anyway, but no one had ever explained it to me is, you don't have a sense of which way is up in space because mm. you're just floating and there's no friction. So you could be what we would consider upside down and you wouldn't be able to tell in space. So when they sleep, they literally sleep in like an upright position or upside down position. It doesn't matter. They, you'll never lie down when you're in space. Mm. You'll never have that feeling of connection with something that's holding you up from being floored to the ground by gravity. Mm. So it's just fascinating. Um, and, and as part of that as well, some of those logistics on the human body, it's incredibly hard. Mm. So they have lots of issues with like bone density and muscle mm. strength up there because there's no friction for them to force against and keep growing their muscles or maintaining them. So yeah, all in all, just super cool uh, and would definitely recommend checking out the NASA YouTube channel. Yeah, definitely. It's fascinating. Mm. You'll definitely check it out tonight. Um, I think I love the idea of like if there was a series of um, when astronauts returned back to Earth and like just following them around of what trivial things were stressing them out <laughs> after <laughs> being in space. Then they do have that enlightenment that, um, yeah, I wonder what B Buzz Aldrin was like really like <laughs> frustrated with when he came back. <laughs> like, he, like he ordered a coffee and he's like, oh, it's just... It's just a bit too cold. <laughs> Could you imagine like anytime technology lets him down, he was like, I went to the moon. Like, <laughs> how can you not solve this? Um, but I think also in terms of that, like giving clarity to what's important in your life and yeah. maybe just be, being the person who you want to be instead yeah. of trying to impress others. <laughs> if you watch anything on Buzz Aldrin these days, like yeah. there's a, there was some like films on YouTube of him doing stuff with Omega, who is the watchmaker yeah. and that's the watch that went to the moon. It was like him and George Clooney watching moon landing footage and, He's an eccentric guy now. <laughs> I feel like he came back from space and was just like, yeah, now I'm going to be me. <laughs> I love that. That is awesome. Um, yeah, I think hopefully we can do um, an episode of the podcast from space one day. Yeah, that'd be out of this world. <laughs> what did you find interesting this week? Um, I, uh, I've been listening to a jazz pianist called Bill Evans and... Uh, what, what, what I'd like to caveat with this is that I, I'm not a person that maybe listens to a lot of piano or um, listens to a lot of different pianists. Um, but 
Uh, this is something that got recommended to me uh, relatively recently. Um, and I didn't think I realized like that I'd already heard a lot of Bill Evans in the past, um, but or like what kind of atmosphere or mood he created as an artist. Mm. Um, but once like being really specific and, and putting headphones on and, and listening to and, and exploring him as an artist um, this week was really, really interesting. Like he is a really, really lush uh, musician and like creates these awesome atmospheres and melodies. And I think when I think about what I want out of a jazz or like soothing music experience, I just want to feel like I'm like floating in the ocean, if that makes <laughs> sense. And I feel like uh, him as an artist, like definitely achieves that. Um, but so I did a little bit of uh, research into um, him as an artist, like just really, really moved by his music this week. And um, he got into his big break in 1958 when he joined Miles Davis for eight months to collaborate on uh, Miles Davis's really historic album, Kind of Blue. So like one of the biggest jazz albums yeah. and just albums in general um, within music's history. And he was this like amazing, like playmaker almost in the background um, that was really, really cool to learn from. Um, and he then formed a trio uh, with drummer um, uh, and bassist Scott LaFiro that was known. Um, it was the really known between the interplay between uh, penis and bassist. So honestly, a lot of my, my music knowledge is very much within the electronic music space mm. and really thinking about how like people that would have played real life instruments interact with each other is a really, really cool and fascinating thing. And knowing that these two humans had this awesome chemistry when they were playing live together, it's a really, really beautiful thing. Um, to learn about and um, they released these really famous albums called uh, Portraits in Jazz and Explorations um, and Evans also released many many solo albums afterwards as well but the reason I'm really really excited about Bill Evans and um, uh, this week is that uh, he was known for playing a grand piano in his tiny New York walk-up apartment while looking out the window in New York City. So he was really known for having this tiny, tiny apartment with this huge piano and every day he would methodically practice day in, day out. And that was his reputation as a musician as he wasn't particularly talented, but he practiced a lot. And he, he was his apartment was known for being a bit of a mess that you went in there and his sole focus was becoming a better musician, that there were just like magazines and books and dirty dishes all over his apartment because he didn't really have space for anything else. Mm. And there are these awesome photos online of him playing the piano in this tiny apartment and looking out the window. And the thing I love about this is that as I started to explore his music is that it's almost like because he had this really strong like interaction with New York City in this apartment while he was creating, um, it's kind of capturing a city in a really specific period of time, which I think is really, really beautiful. Mm. Um, and on top of that, really, really cool to think that if you were his neighbors at that point in time, like you could just be doing the dishes and just hear this like beautiful music being played out yeah. into the streets, which I think is really, really cool. That's so cool. I think, yeah, Bill Evans, it, it's cool, right? Because you can, you said you liked listening to him because of that lush sort of atmosphere yeah. he provides. And it, it's so true that like, it's not always being the most talented in terms of like, you know, the finger exercises and yeah. having the, the best sort of skill level, but just about the music that you can create with what you have. And sometimes that can be better than someone who's just really good at scales and runs and things like that. But, you know, you can listen to like Art Tatum, right? Mm. And, and Art Tatum is just like one of the most skilled piano players you'll ever hear play. Mm. But it can actually wear on your ears and your brain after yeah. a while because there's so much like, like kind of stuff, right? <laughs> it's, it's full on. So you appreciate the skill, but uh, 
as that an atmosphere it's pretty intense yeah whereas you get a bill evans who you can listen to for a long time and you're right makes you sort of just feel good and it, it gives you that it's just a vibe really yeah it's really cool definitely i think um if you listen to this and want to give it a go just put on like put on some headphones like open your spotify or your music service provider and just listen to the top tracks that are provided on there and just go through it and yeah and if you really enjoy it enjoy it let us know in the comments <laughs> yeah do it um, anyway, guys, as always, thank you for coming on our learning journey. Um, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcast if you enjoyed the podcast and want to hear more and leave us a five-star review. It'll help us a lot. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs>